verb. Wait, wait, wait. Hear me out. Brennan is Phineas. Duncan is verb. They're trying to make Mindy Isabella, but who's Mindy? Chutki. 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 From a different show. <laughs> From a completely Confused. different universe. You're I am three things and I'm going to tell you just what they are. Number one, I am Sanya. I am the host of this podcast and Mindy Kaling's biggest admirer. Secondly, I am joined once again by two favorite people of mine, Kian and Parthiv. Yo. Sup. Okay. And three, I am also pleased to welcome you back to the Dear Mindy Kaling Pod, which, yes, is technically a podcast, but in truth, it's really an open love letter to one Miss Mindy Kaling, making you, if you aren't Mindy, an eavesdropper. This love letter is one that engages in a study of Kaling's body of work, both deep and wide, to allow my mind to be addressed, since this is something it already is doing all of the time, and also to give her and her body of work to do it very much deserves and doesn't necessarily get. Now, given that this is an open love letter, we can discern that I have love to give. And as much love as I do have for Mindy, I want to make it known that there are many whom I love. And while they may not be getting such an extensive open love letter that's being made available for streaming, contributing to my digital footprint, creating opportunities for future employers, and many, many other people to encounter me and ask if I'm that person who once said that they thought orphans came into existence the same way that Ivy did. My point is that there is more love to give, and give it I shall at the start of every episode in a new opening segment we are calling Love Notes. Kian, would you like to begin? I would. I'm a bit confused because I have two love notes that might be interrelated so may I give you both pending approval okay so the first one is for Rachel Bloom she is the co-creator and writer and star of one of my favorite tv shows of all time it's called crazy ex-girlfriend I don't know if you've caught it um sometimes I would watch shows that were on tv and be like I've just discovered something yeah. you know and this is definitely one of those shows for me definitely um it's quite a tedious war <laughs> yeah I have watched it Five times. Uh, I love the show. I love its premise. And I love the characters. And I think she's done such an incredible job at portraying imperfect women. Yeah, I love imperfect women on the screen and the stage. Quite fun, quite cool. And the second person is her co-host. I'm not co-host, co-creator. Aline Brosh McKenna, which I don't think I'm saying correctly. But she wrote 27 Dresses and... She adapted the Devil Wears Prada. Sana, 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 give your thoughts on 27 dresses. Sana, give your thoughts on 27 dresses. Wait, Sana, I just asked the stupidest question of my life to Kian and you missed it. <laughs> what? She said, what did you, what did you adapt the Devil Wears Prada to? Oh my god. <laughs> um, my thoughts on 27 dresses. I just said, every time I think of watching it, and I spend a lot of time between watches for 27 dresses, is like, I'm so excited about the dresses. Like, when I forget that it's just, like, kind of an opening montage. At, and, like, we get a tiny peek into her closet. And I forgot that that whole, like, side plot happens with her boss. And then and her, her sister. sister, who's that woman on Trophy Wife. And, like, <laughs> every time I watch it, I'm like, 
wait no 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 this because i really <laughs> think it's going to be all about the dresses and i think i think by the way i think so many movies should be remade just with like tiny edits from me like just small notes like they don't even change the movie that much like i have a list of movies that i would change slightly and then they would be better and this is definitely on the list thank you for critiquing my love <laughs> <laughs> um if either of you are hearing this hi i love you <gasps> you were wishing her What an opportune moment. So true. Wish they heard. Don't no no no. Pass if you keep your mouth shut. Wow. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> movie magic. Pass and go. My love letter. Note. My love note is to Zoe Deschanel. <gasps> Cuz I recently found out that she is in a relationship with a property brother. You didn't know that. I didn't know that. Possibly you're so lame for not knowing brothers. that. I don't know which one, but that's insane. You know that's one thing that I've always wondered. The fact that she's with one of the property brothers and that twins. It's like do you think she's like no, I'm I'm attracted to this one. No. Or she was like either one of them. <laughs> but like You didn't know this. You're and she so makes lame. appearances on their shows and stuff. Also, I think she did a lot for banks. Hot day, can't forget her. Yeah, she has done Work for banks like charity. Would work. you think she's done a lot for quirky protagonists as well, or do you think that's a stretch? I think she's done a lot for asexual people. What? Please, I, I really have to know this. Yeah, explain. No, because sometimes you just say things and you have no like other thoughts than like the sentence you've said. Because can you imagine her having sex on New Girl? Yes. I can't imagine it. It's you haven't seen sh- New Girl like we I have. You watched it once ish at our request. I know, but I liked it. Yeah, but like I can fully see it. It's I just also the way that she presents herself. She's not hypersexualized from a male perspective. This was after the writers' strike. The show started in two thousand and nine. What an amazing year for television! And Elizabeth Merriweather, who she she's like a playwright. She wrote this, and there was a lot of improv and like input from the characters. And like, if there's such a thing as a female gay show, which is something that we can talk about later, <laughs> New Girl is like the champion of that cause. So she's not. She definitely has sex and stuff in the shows. She's not even like sexually repressed or anything. She's just not super sexualized. I did that purposefully so we can segue. Liar! I did. Keep... I did purposely. You... <laughs> yeah, my love note. Okay, so I picked two. I mean, I love both of these people so much. However, I think I'm gonna save one of them for later. I And maybe. For later. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So today's love note goes out to Bill Hader. If there's one thing, okay, one thing that you can know about me that is unequivocally true is I will watch any video that says like. Bill Hader compilation or Bill Hader full interview. I will watch any video like that at any given moment. There's no time where I'm like, no, this is not the time for this. And I would probably, you know what, know all the lyrics to that song and sing along with the video. And so today's love note goes out to Bill Hader. Okay, wonderful. Now, last week we covered the presence of romantic comedies in the Mindy project and how Mindy's insertion into that narrative form changes the way it functions. why it does that and what its significance is. If you haven't listened to that, why not? It's a good episode. It also covers a concept that we will be speaking about recursively in the series. So go listen if you haven't and if you have, good. Good on you. We're so happy for you. We're really happy for you and you know what? We want what's best for you. You can do anything you set your mind to. Um don't cross your arms. It keeps you from um receiving all the opportunity that the universe has for you. Love you. We would like to note that not every episode is going to be an examination of themes in the Mindy project. Some of them will demand examinations of other parts of her body of work, her career, and like things she has said. And today's episode is a bit more like that. 
Um, I feel like we've beat around the bush sufficiently enough that we kind of have to talk about what today's episode is. We weren't sure if we should make it the second episode, um, or even an episode, and Pasha was like, why? It's important. And we were like, I don't know, isn't it annoying? (laughs) But, um... There's a good amount to be said about it, and the, I think the earlier on we do it in this series, the further we can go, assuming that this is common knowledge between us and our listeners, ideally listener, Mindy, in which case, like, it'd be kind of funny that I'm explaining this yeah. stuff. <laughs> Today's episode is about Kihan, can you see it? The male gaze and male-dominated spaces. <laughs> Guys, remember I was telling you last week on Coffee with Kara and Kara and Johar was like, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Karina Kapoor Khan and Amir Khan. And then I was like, what if we started saying like men and others? Like, isn't that more inclusionary? <laughs> and I said no. Yeah. And then I was like, what if on this podcast we were like Mindy and others? <laughs> and that I can get behind. Yeah. I agree with Maybe that. Maybe we shall. So Mindy and others, let's begin. So Kian, what is the male case? <laughs> Wow, okay, so Laura Mulvey coined the term in her essay Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, wherein she explains that the patriarchy's unconscious molds film through visual language. And this is inherited from social structures and formations around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mulvey basically studies the image of the woman, what it evokes in and serves the audience, its purpose, and the ways in which it functions. The term has changed the way we think or the way we view rather the seeing of a woman in cinema where women are a spectacle. Men are the bearer of the gaze and women are the image. Okay, Sanya. So what are male-dominated spaces? I mean, what aren't male-dominated spaces? You know what I mean? No, male-dominated spaces like obviously are spaces in which there is a majority of men in one sense but also just spaces in which there are just like a domineering male presence which unfortunately is most spaces so why is this theme in particular relevant to the study of mindy well like i said earlier given the dominance of a male presence in any given space there's really room to look for it anywhere however however in the case of mindy i think it's relevant because of when and how she came up how it manifests in her work how that's changed over time. So she came up like in 2004 as a writer in the office as the only female writer, also a woman of color, in a staff of like five, six other white male writers who all went to Harvard, right? And um, I think that to understand this, you really have to look at these themes through a review of her whole body of work as well as moments in her career. Okay, so let's start with the male gaze. Okay, so as for the male gaze, I think at least as far as the Mindy project goes, its presence is less extensive and more pervasive. And what I mean by that is that it fills up all the little crevices, the empty nooks and crannies in the Mindy project. We will also not be speaking on the male gaze as it pertains to Mindy Kaling, because why would we? She is a human being, and while the show is written and created by her, that does not synonymize her experiences, insecurities, flaws, etc. to Mindy Lahiri. They happen to live in the same body, yes, and experiences do inform the show but I can't really speak on how the male gaze affects her because I would have to like go through quotes of her and be really speculative and interpretive which I think is a useless venture so I just want to make clear that when we are talking about the male gaze we are talking about Mindy Lahiri unless otherwise mentioned so to begin with let's talk a bit about the pervasive male gaze in the Mindy project 
So I think one of the most important episodes where this comes up is Halloween, mm-hmm. where her stupid boyfriend Josh is like, "Will you come to my like Halloween party with me as my date?" And she's like, "Yeah, sure." And he's like, "But you have to dress to impress." Yeah. He also like this is like an eight a.m. morning coffee date that they go on, and he's like, "Do you think I'm gonna kill you?" Which like I think fits into this, but in a way that'll take too long to explain. He asks her to go to Halloween party basically that same night, and then he's like, "Last year I took a model." So, and she's like, well, in my college brochure, there's a picture of me holding a test tube. So I guess you have a thing for models. <laughs> Very, again, the thing I said about, like, externally imposed self-deprecation, except it's like she picks the anecdote and then halfway through realizes, like, oh, wait, never mind. This doesn't actually help my argument. And she basically spends the whole day trying to figure out what to wear for this Halloween party. And um, Betsy, Shauna, and Morgan help her. And I just want to say, Betsy is so bam goaded. She looks way too much like Jenna Fisher and she walks the reception. Right? Yeah. Very true. Okay. Also, Mindy needs her costume to be both hilarious and sexy. And um, one of my favorite costumes she comes up with, because there's like a montage of her trying things and they're like, no, 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 this doesn't work. She comes out and when she's like, they're like, what is that? And she's like, I'm an Enlightenment era homosexual. Which, like, what a costume idea. Imagine yeah. explaining that to people. I think she should have gone as um something that something from an episode that comes up later in the list that we're going to talk about today, which is just, like, the brown M&M. Because uh, they, men- they mentioned once that she tried to shut down the M&M store in Times Square because she was like, the brown M&M stole my look, which is so <laughs> funny. <laughs> Another instance is a line, I think, in season one, episode 24. Should I give context for the line? Yeah. Okay, so basically, Danny's back with Christina, his ex-wife, played by Chloe Sevenier, which I'm stupid, so I didn't realize until, like, my 90th watching of the Mindy product. I guess I only recognize her with long hair. Danny and Christina and Mindy and Casey go on a camping trip, and um, Christina's talking about how the woods are great, and, like how it's so nice because you get this peace and quiet and no one sexualizes you. It's so much better than the city. And then Mindy says, Who doesn't want to be sexualized? Which I was like, I get it. It's like a little jokey joke, but also interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. At some other point in the show... In the Harry and Sally episode, which we spoke about last week, and if you're not a lame loser, you would know that episode. Yes, so in that <laughs> episode, there's this line where she's her friend... Maggie. Maggie, who is... Her leg is broken, okay? Mm-hmm. She, her leg is in a cast. And she's trying to flirt with Jeremy. Mm-hmm. For some reason, she thinks it's wise for her to say, there's only one thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, and it's the same thing that gets me in. Dudes. Dudes. Which, Kian and I both had to pause the episode when she said that, because I was like, again, that's fuck? funny, but also, wow. That's a lot. Like, if I ever said that out loud and meant it... I would have to make a phone call. Yeah. I would have to phone a friend. Who would you be calling? Probably you. Really? I'd be like, yeah, do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> also, one other thing that's interesting, male gaze-wise, in the Mindy Project, is the character of Peter. So Peter is a very, like, bro-y, fratty guy who joins the practice, and he and Mindy are not friends at all at first, and they kind of, like, ease into their friendship a little bit later. And one of the things that really works about their friendship to Mindy, which is something you see in a lot of other sitcoms I feel like is like a male best friend who is not trying to cash in on you sexually but has a very active male gaze so has the ability to see you as sexy but not sexualize you so like you can go up to him and be like how does this look and he can say something that's like 
borderline objectification but like he's not actively interested and i think that that's really interesting because there's definitely a desire to sort of be perceived like that in your mind and then this satiates that without putting you in any one act of danger which i think again unfortunately becomes part of the male gaze and also to i don't know it's different when like someone who's actively interested in you does that because all the implications of, of it actualizing are just different um and like i said earlier the sort of desire to be perceived in a way that's able to be sexualized is interesting when you consider the internalization of the male gaze which really is like margaret atwood's baby the thing that's really frustrating about it is like there's no way out of it really with the way that she phrases it like she says it so perfectly and i'm gonna read it out now male fantasies male fantasies is everything run by male fantasies up on a pedestal or down on your knees it's all a male fantasy that you're strong enough to take what they dish out or else too weak to do anything about it even pretending you aren't catering to a male fantasy is a male fantasy pretending you're unseen pretending you have a life of your own that you can wash your feet and comb your hair unconscious of the ever present watcher peering through the keyhole peering through the keyhole in your own head if nowhere else you are a woman with a man inside watching a woman you are your own voyeur that's from her novel the robber bride and like i said earlier the way that she articulates it is such that it's not really something you can get out of especially um the thing she says about even not being a male fantasy is a male fantasy and um you being a woman with a man inside watching a woman we want to acknowledge that her premise relies on heteronormativity posing a limitation to its consideration and definition of women we see very clearly those blind spots in these texts However, for the sake of this reading, this might be permissible, even valuable, given that the society in which we exist is such. We're considering how these structures exist institutionally and how they affect the individual. So we would like to make the addition, as prompted by our reading of this text and the combination of this and the Mindy Project, something that the Atwood essay maybe forgets to consider because it uses women as a collective group rather than particularly considering how changes occur at intersections. I have found that this internalized male gaze is a white male gaze. This perspective, much like Spivak's, aids our inquiry in considering what it means to be an Indian woman because these effects are ingrained in that experience and by extension that identity, but also because identity is a matter of self-perception. This makes it a task that's simultaneously external and internal because we don't solely understand ourselves within our surroundings, but we're molded by them. and therefore the internalizations that spivak as we considered um last week when we were talking about subaltern communities and outward each present to present value systems through which we shape and thus see ourselves we also want to make a point to talk about the female gaze mhm so vanity fair wrote an article about the midi project and particularly a scene where danny is dancing for mindy for mindy yeah. as a gift uh <laughs> Which Sana doesn't enjoy. Yeah, I hate when Danny's dancing. It. I would like a gift that would be like a performance. And you take it passive. You enjoy it. I take it so well. It says that Mindy's role as spectator and the gender dynamic flip at play here might be more significant than you realize. In a post-magic Mike world, <sighs> Danny on display may not seem all that groundbreaking. But don't forget that when it comes to network sitcoms, women are still often seen as objects and prizes to be won. and even in a broader TV landscape increasingly populated by strong and complicated women the female gaze that Kaling pulls off here is actually fairly rare what exactly is the female gaze it's the yin to the male gaze's yang 
the decidedly female viewpoint that can objectify a subject, but more importantly, empowers the person doing the gazing. I feel like that's a stretch. I feel like the fallacy within the female gaze firstly lies in, again, the thing that Atwood said, right? Key hole in your own mind. It can just as easily be switched because ultimately the male can fantasize whatever he wants and then it becomes a female fantasy. So if the male fantasy is for you to think that you have a female gaze, like it could completely disappear just by virtue of that. Also, the idea of a female gaze, it can't really exist unless we have a truly egalitarian status quo, if not a female-dominated one. And most importantly, I think that this situation doesn't really empower her. He's dancing for her instead of getting her a gift. I think that this article, whoever's written it with what I'm sure are the best of intentions, has like had to do a lot of bending over backwards to see this point of view. And I just, I don't really agree with it. Any thoughts, Kian? Quite a leap. Yeah, a bit of a leap. I like leap. the dancing though. But quite a leap. I don't like the dancing, the but dancing that has nothing good. to do with the... F- I mean... Yeah, I think it's cute. Moving on. Moving on. The article also led to the mini project to girls, which we do not want to talk about. No, sir. I watched three episodes. I watched more than I wanted to. I was just in a place in my life when I, I watched, watched all of it. Yeah, I you did. I never be in that place. Yeah, it was a hard place. Part of, I, I, I remember part of, of yeah, part of it was peak pandemic and he was doing that thing where like he posts like whatever he started watching like on his story like he would post the poster of I it. I those. I hated that. Saw. No, I hated that. I but that. I remember part of like texting me and he was like, hey, I started watching girls and he was like ready for it to like change his life. Like he was like ready for this to be his flea bag because he was like, this is edgy and I was like, I hate to tell you. That's never going to happen. No. Anyway, we digress. Now, we will talk about something that takes up more plot than dialogue. Male-dominated spaces. I think the frequency with which this makes up the plot in not only the Mindy Project, but other things in Mindy Kaling's work definitely conveys that this is a preoccupation of hers, which probably comes from the early days in her career working on The Office, and it's a reminder of the start of her career, but I think that that's something we want to end with in the discussion. Let's start with the Mindy project again because this is sort of like her first baby and her workplace is not kind of heavily male dominated and there's a lot of undermining of her in several ways as we covered last week in the sense that in the sense of externally imposed self-deprecation right so the first episode we're going to talk about is the literal second episode of the show which is called hiding and fighting in which there's a nurse named Beverly who's like supremely incompetent. Also, the way that Beverly's written is super interesting to me. One thing about Beverly that's super interesting to me when she's written, it's like, I feel like when we've watched it together, like part of us has been able to like laugh aloud at things she said and I have not. I just feel like all the jokes that she makes, because first of all, everything she says is, a, says is like a joke more or less, and that's the trying to be like a hashtag humanizing Beverly episode, which is the birthday one and the ones with her son. But I feel like like, none of her lines feel like they're written by her in the sense that, like, don't you feel like the characters are at least thinking of the sentences for most of the other characters? I feel like somebody else is writing for Beverly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, so season one, episode two, is called Hiding and Fighting. And guess what? It opens with Seth Meyers. Shout out to my Seth Meyers <laughs> theory. <laughs> if you listen to the last episode, which you should have, you know what I'm talking about. So, basically, Hiding and Fighting, season one, episode two, the heavily incompetent Beverly is, like, not doing her job at all like taking vials of blood home and she's a nurse (laughs) and Mindy holds a partner meeting and she's like hey we all know that Beverly sucks and is bad and we always have known that but it was like we'd hoped that like we really wouldn't have to converse with her during the day but now she's like stealing blood samples (laughs) maybe she should not be a nurse at this medical practice (laughs) and um 
Dr. Schulman's like, cool, Danny, you rehire a new nurse and we'll get rid of Beverly. And Mindy is like, wait, I raised the issue of Beverly's incompetence and yet Danny is tasked with hiring a new nurse. Actually, she didn't say that. Those are my words. Her words were, now that I'm in my mid-20s to early 30s, I'm going to take on more of a leadership role around here. And nobody really responds. And so she goes, and as a woman of color, and Danny says, not this again. But then Dr. Schulman is like, hmm. I like this kind of spunk or pluck or whatever he says. And then he's like, fine, Mindy, you can hire a new nurse. And then Danny said, later on to Dr. Shulman alone. Remember when Mindy's office was used for storage? Now that was great. Hate her father of her child. Yeah, honestly. Really, sometimes. Dr. Shulman says, Mindy's going to hire a good nurse. But if you think she's doing something that could be bad for the practice, step in. Womp womp. Which... So disappointing. Yeah. And then Mindy meets a woman who has similar interests as her and Danny says, nope, because one, Mindy is apparently enough for him. More than enough even. More than enough for him. And then he steps in to supervise. Also, this woman was a qualified nurse. She seemed to have a great resume. Um, And she was getting along with the person who was employing her. Yeah, which is not a red flag as far as I've seen. And then Danny steps in. He's like, I'm supervising. And then Mindy goes to Dr. Schumann. She's like, yo, what? And then Danny's like, are you tattling, really? And then Mindy says this amazing line where she says, tattling is when a little girl does it. When a hot woman does it, it's called whistleblowing. (laughs) And then Dr. Schulman's like, I know you hire a good nurse on your own, but you guys will hire the perfect nurse together. Uh, Which, I don't know, man. And then Danny refuses to look at the resumes because he's like, nah, I go with gut. Which, like, is not a, like... It's a bit of a not a green flag in my <laughs> eyes because he's like, let me look at the person in front of me and make base assumptions based on their personality. Definitely how they look and things like that over like their literal qualifications on paper for a medical field. Makes sense. Unnecessary. And um, Morgan at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the next episode, which is basically the same episode, but six episodes later. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> this is season one, episode eight, two to one. Okay, I think it's really considerable that this issue comes up twice this early in her run of the show because the things that she covers in the first season seem to be episodes like about stuff, either like fantasies of hers, manifestations of moments or stories from her own life, or like issues that feel like they reflect her values or like tensions that feel relevant to her, stuff that came up in the pitch of the show, like the reasons that she wanted to get it made. And the fact that this was there twice again reinstates that this is a preoccupation of hers. The episode opens with her asleep in the doctor's lounge. Mindy's been doing deliveries and working herself to the, f- to the bone. <laughs> the other doctors notice this through superficial means, such as her hair, but it isn't comparative in that they claim she's working more, but instead that they're wearing it better. Mm-hmm. It's very like, can women really have it all? You know, like, they all have the same job, but the fact that like she's posted up at the doctor's lounge and like sleeping there, and they're just like coming in and out of work, but like, there's no acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, she's working more or less. Also, the idea, like, the way that her love life is forefront in a way that it's something she has to work at. Like, she's trying to find a man versus, like, for a lot of the rest of them. And by that, I mean Jeremy and Danny and occasionally other ones. It's just that, like, their love life kind of happens, you know? Like, they'll, like, meet someone at a coffee shop and they're like, yeah, we're going on a date. Like, things just happen for them and Mindy has to work for them. Like, that also comes up in the sense of... I think the contrast between her and Gwen, especially in the first season, where Gwen is, like, they're the same age, they're friends from college, right? And Gwen has, like, a child and a husband, and she lives in Connecticut, and, like, Mindy's, like, a working woman, and Gwen's life is very much, like, a foil to hers, 
and she wants to have those things but she also wants to have the things that she does have and I think that the removal of Gwen over time and how that plays into this is interesting um I also think it's kind of sad because there's like a season five or six episode I think it's six where she enters the lunchroom at the practice and she's like really happy and someone's like what happened did one of your friends from college get divorced and I feel like the evolution of like Gwen as her best friend and best friends day and stuff in season one did this is sad in the same episode um in spite of my digressions Schumann retires Mm -hmm. Jeremy asks who's in charge now and Mindy's like I think we are yeah then they all have an asset evaluation with a lawyer and they realize that the three doctors Jeremy Danny and Mindy are liable for the practice if it goes under yeah yeah and then um they get really scared they also realize that they're losing Dr. Schulman's patients so Danny has this awful idea for a medical professional he's like email all the clients and be like oh 20% discount and Mindy was like what no there are clients we've known them for years that's just like write to them personally or call them individually and be like hey you know that you're taking care of whatever and then they're like no it's already been decided and then um Jeremy's like yeah I like Danny's idea here's his idea to put my face on the taxi cab ads and then Mindy's like since when can we afford taxi cab ads and then he's like look Mindy chill we're just doing leadership that's leadership isn't it making swift decisions with handsome faces and then Mindy retorts with how she's a leader too and she says some sort of example about like there was someone playing music outside the practice and like disrupting everyone like busking and then she went and gave him money and told him to go away and bother someone else he did come back two hours later it was another one of those Mm -hmm. like anecdotes that she pulls out in her defense and then realizes that it undermines her halfway through it and basically they dismiss her and move on because who cares what Mindy has to say yep and they tell her to go have a good best friend day yeah that's the day she's taking Mm -hmm. a personal day and uh, at some point they also are trying to make a decision and she's a little confused and doesn't agree yeah they're turning Dr. Schulman's uh, office into a storage room and she's like no this should be a prenatal resource center yeah and they're like um actually we voted and she's (laughs) like I was not present for this vote and they said it doesn't matter it's two versus one so what else happens in this episode Kian who are we introduced to who are all men yeah they're white men and they are the Duplass brothers baby both of them both of them I think the dismissal of the doctors versus midwives is so interesting it provides scope for potential sub-commentary where you know like these white men are doing these eastern practices and um, the men at the OBGYN practice are dismissing the only like female doctor Danny later says to one of his patients um, who is an expectant mother denying your baby western medicine is incredibly stupid so I think the amount of undermining that's going on both from white people white men towards um Mindy who's a South Asian woman who's also an American woman but she's like a South Asian woman to an expectant mother to a woman gynecologist is like speaking volumes and then at some point Mindy is complaining to Gwen about this and Gwen says well we're just happy that you could make it for our yeah. Yeah. Rich, Gwen, read the room. And um, the whole <laughs> office falls apart, obviously, because Mindy's not there. And then Mindy has to step in to take charge. And she goes to the midwives. Yeah, and she goes to the midwives and basically is like, hey, great. But, like, what happens if there's a complication? What happens if this? What happens if that? And, um, like, this isn't to be dismissive of midwifery, but what we do is important, too. And, in fact, it is more important for a lot of you in this room who we know personally you are our clients come back whatever also guys this is the first um hint at the potential for sexual tension between um mindy and brendan and can i just say something that i thought with my head 
Okay. So, like, Duncan's, like, always, like, and Brendan's, like, talk, 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 and, I don't know, Dun- Duncan's just, like, that, you know? Like, he's with him, and he's smiling, and he's lovable, for sure, and it's so, like, Brendan is Phineas, and Duncan oh is Forb. Wait, 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 hear me out. Brendan is Phineas, Duncan is Forb. They're trying to make Mindy Isabella, but who's Mindy Chutki? Chutki! Chutki! From a different show. From a completely different universe. <laughs> as important as that opinion was we need to move on we now have to talk about season two episode five which is called wiener night and i personally consider this to be like the episode two and a half three of season two even though it's episode five and that's because at episode like 18 she meets my cool christian boyfriend i think casey and then her time with casey is a whirlwind i would say a mini series of its own and then that's when season two begins it's almost like they made a movie between seasons and then they had the generosity <laughs> to break it up for us and that's what the Casey arc was and I will always cherish it. He's my brother's favorite character he told me recently. Wow. Not in anything, like in the mini project. Oh, anyway, so Wiener Night, right? Wiener Night is an episode shortly after, spoiler alert, their engagement breaks off. But guess what? It touches upon high and low art. But nonetheless, even though that's not really what we're talking about here today, there are two reasons to cover it on the theme of male gaze and male-dominated spaces. And I think it has to do with the interaction of high and low art with um, the idea of male-dominated spaces because it reminded me of this 1971 essay by American art historian Linda Nochlin. And I bought a book version of it recently earlier this summer. It's called Why Have There Been no great women artists. It's important to note, it's not why there have been no great women artists, it's why have there been no great women artists. It basically has to do with the male domination of art spaces and suggests that the value system through which we understand art is inherently male dominated, as are many things. So the assumption is kind of that what is, is usually seen as what's normal. And um, she continues, The fault lies not in our stars, our hormones, our menstrual cycles, or our empty internal spaces, but in our institutions and our education. Education understood to include everything that happens to us from the moment we enter this world of meaningful symbols, signs, and signals. I think Mindy Hmm. is one of these artists that she speaks about because she is a real girl's girl, like the opposite of a not like other girl's girl. In a way that she isn't ashamed to be a woman. And she does not work to be pleased or liked by a man. It's just to be funny. A lot of her references... Well, no, I will say she works to be pleased and liked by men, but her humor, her humor doesn't. doesn't yeah. yeah. Because of a, lot, a lot of her references are based around pop culture, around traditionally feminine things, which I don't think a lot of traditional men would be interested in. Then we have whatever the opposite of a fan favorite is, Mindy <laughs> Kaling. Is no, white. we can't say this in unison. You can say the name. <laughs> Mindy Kaling is a white man. I don't really want to talk about this episode, but Minnie's up for a position at the hospital as the director of obstetrics. She doesn't get a second interview, which is really sad, and she's super bummed out and goes to bed all upset, and she wishes that she's a white man. And she wakes up in a surprising turn of events, as you guessed it, a white man. Before you continue, may I say something? There's a few episodes of this variety on the Mindy Project. And Mindy, I love you, okay? I love you. And this shouldn't take away from the fact that I love you. In fact, maybe this is one of the ways in which I do love you. But I don't like these episodes where she wakes up and her life is different. There was a Groundhog Day episode. There's 
this one and I, there's one more where like Joseph Gordon-Levitt yeah she's engaged to Joseph Gordon-Levitt or she's married to him instead of like Danny who she wants to be married to and I'll say in that one at least they gave us a break <laughs> by like giving him a side plot where he's like flown all the way to Mumbai and he's trying to tell right I like that yeah that's what I'm saying at least they broke it up a bit in this one we have to endure a lot you know it's like someone was like it's like we walked into our first Pilates class and they were like 59 minute blank that's what this episode feels like to me Parth if you can go on well basically she has a great time being a white man shocking I mean who wouldn't but then slowly Uh, she (laughs) what nothing continue but slowly she realizes that as a white hetero man child wow. she's experiencing a sense of privilege that's making her feel all kinds of guilt by the end of the episode though she realizes that she will always be excluded from the boys club but she never work hard enough to be in this boys club so a little bit of sisterhood of the traveling solidarity isn't so bad also, i'm so glad you said sisterhood of the traveling anything because the like the range of ways in which i've tried to incorporate that into a sentence for this <laughs> podcast and have not succeeded like i'm so glad you said that also I'd just like to add that she is the only female doctor at her OBGYN practice and she's still being constantly undermined for the for her femininity and also because people just think she's frivolous. Yeah. But Kian, she's not the only female doctor at her OBGYN practice for long because guess what we next up have? Mindy Kaling is a misogynist. So, after Jeremy's health incident at the nurses' strike, he decides the practice needs a new doctor to balance the workload. And this doctor has to be a woman. Ridiculous. Which is weird to start off with. <laughs> and Mindy hates it. And every doctor they interview is unceremoniously rejected by her for having, quote-unquote, a bad vibe. Instead, she finds an unqualified, gassy doctor who is as he-him as they get. In a last-ditch attempt to be awful to her co-workers, she asks Anna Zeev, who was recently fired for slapping a colleague at her practice, to interview for the position. And surprisingly, Jeremy and Jody love her as does everybody else, so obviously she's hired. But soon enough, as a consequence of Mindy's little nurse lover living in New Jersey, she arrives late to work. One second. By little nurse lover, passes referring to bun. <laughs> bun. Bun. <laughs> Only to find out that her favourite patient has been stolen by this white blonde woman who is talented and has a personal relationship with celebrity interior designer Nate Burgess. Mindy now threatens to fire Anna. And they have to make her apologize. Not for the first time in this show, man. Not for the first time. And maybe, I don't think the last time, though. And then she gives us a justification. Yeah. She says... She, one thing, she apologizes to Anna, and then she has a whole, like, moment in yes, which she says... In which she says, the only reason that I am the way that I am is that I was raised in a system created by men that has pitted women against each other. It was true in the sixth grade, and it's still true today. I was taught to believe that men can only handle one woman at a time. So it's not my fault that I was set in by Anna. I think this is an instance of lampshading gang. Um, for those who don't know, lampshading is a writer's trick of dealing with any element of the story that threatens the audience's willing suspension of disbelief by calling attention to it in the script itself. In this case, though, it's not really about suspension of disbelief as much as it is response to criticism that Mindy used to receive about finally getting her due and not being it forward to other women. So finally getting her own show and then using it to give a bunch of other male actors more work. I think that the lampshading is significant especially now because while she uses her future works or I guess her current works like Never Have I Ever and Sex Lives of College Girls to forefront more female-centered narratives and female ensemble casts the issue kind of resurfaces in a way that's not dissimilar in the second season of Never Have I Ever where Anissa joins a school and Devi is pissed and 
it's kind of different because like they're both Indian girls, so that does more to pit them against each other. But it's also like it's not like they're not being pit against each other when Anna's white, you know? Like they both are kind of competitors to her in the same ways that only exist because of the fact that it's a male dominated space and that the male gaze is pervasive in that space. Another thing that's interesting is that in Never Have I Ever, and yes, it's not like a sexualized voice or anything, but like the narration, so like the voice in the series is of John McEnroe, who's a white man, um, but I understand that has to do with her father and things like that. It's not internalized male gaze, it's just interesting. And um, even Kamala, who goes to Caltech and she's getting her PhD and stuff in the second season, I think she's doing like a study. She's really excited about it. And they're like, hey, can you clean the beakers? And they kind of make her do all these like, Menial tasks. Yeah, and it feels gendered. And Mindy works with a lot of women, and her voice is very much that of a girl's goal. But the environments that she entered rather than created are very much a part of her experience. She made a movie about that informed by her early days on The Office called Late Night. Kian? So it's basically a movie that's been written and produced by Miss Mindy Kaling, and it stars Emma Thompson. Uh, Mindy plays Molly Patel, who was barely inducted into the writer's room of Catherine Newbury's late night show. Which is really sweet that she named her Catherine because she also named her daughter Catherine because she said that that's her favorite name. Yes. Yeah. Uh, basically, everything you need to know about Catherine is that she hates working with women. And she only has men who she does not have any personal relationship with. She like calls them numbers, like she calls them one, two, and three. Her ratings are falling. So in response to this, she instructs her staff to hire a woman as a diversity hire. And consequently, Molly is hired because she happens to both be a woman and a woman of color, which... Double whammy. Absolutely. (laughs) It's important to note that Molly has had no previous experience as a writer or a comic. She has worked as a quality control manager at some chemical plant. Because of this and the fact that everyone knows she's a diversity hire, the men in the writer's room don't really give her the credit that she deserves and actually give her quite a hard time. Steadily though, Molly's inputs become better received and are even executed by Catherine, but it's too late. The network is quite adamant on replacing her with a <gasps> younger male host. What? And they ask her to announce her retirement on live television. Which is a lot. Which is a lot. Molly's entry into Catherine's life basically allows her to think beyond the traditional rules of showbiz uh, that she might have learned while she was living in this boys club. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Catherine does this badass improv and she steamrolls all of the network executives and she challenges their decision to replace her. She states her desire to stay as host and even gets her replacement to agree that she would do the job better while the cameras are still very much rolling. Too good. Uh, The movie basically ends by presenting the show's current state of affairs a year later and it's doing quite well as a result of a more inclusive team of writers. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed this movie when I watched it. I think it was like equal parts like sweet and funny and like corny when it needed to be. I think actually one thing that's interesting about it which I'm only realizing now is that um, like obviously Molly's character is informed by Mindy's early days in the office but I think Catherine's character is somewhat informed by Mindy's time as, like, the creator-executive-producer of the Mindy project, without the criticism she received, um, and, like, understanding that she also came from a voice club and therefore succeeded under and within that. Um, I think that putting those two in a conversation almost 
has allowed for like a reflection on her past and like a conversation between two versions of herself how maybe she wanted to be treated and the power that she had to treat people similarly um when she was in then a position of power mm-hmm. has culminated in a really enjoyable film yeah. and i think is also just really relevant to our conversation now so let's talk the early office days so mindy was not only the only woman on the initial um writing staff of the office she was also the only woman of color like i said earlier the rest of them were white men who went to harvard she thought they were all friends and in interviews and things when she's talking about her time there um unfortunately i don't have a quote from a specific one but i'm willing to paraphrase she says that at the start she used to be kind of shy and soft spoken and like wouldn't really speak on things she felt but like she was like but i'm sure if you ask any of the rest of them they'd be like oh mindy never have a, had a problem saying how she felt and things like that and i like she says it with fondness but i think that i've experienced that in other parts of my life and i'm like thanks there's a quote that she says in an interview where she says i was the only person of color and the only woman in a staff of seven that was 2004. Now that would be absolutely insane. But when I was a writer there, if I had a bad day or said something lame or unfunny, I was like, oh, this is what they think Indian women are like, which is a feeling that I think I can relate to, um, especially during my time at college. Also, it's a feeling that sucks. There's also an incident, guys. So in 2019, Mindy Kaling was interviewed by Ellen. She's talking about her career and she mentions this incident where in an early season of The Office, they were nominated for some emmys and she was a producer as well as a writer on the show but the television academy was like there's too many producers and they kind of singled her out and only really removed her from the list of What? producers and they were like if you want to be part of the nominated party you have to write an essay get letters written by the people who had the same exact job as her she was like you need to get them What to write letters yeah <laughs> yeah so the people in the same position as her had to write letters stating what her contributions were and why she should be nominated and all of that stuff she had to do all that extra work and only after she was like hey this isn't fair and they're like fine if you want to be considered this is what you can do she said this in 2019 and the television academy spoke out and they were like we didn't single anybody out there was just too many producers on too many shows that year and she was like why say that like this was 10 years ago i'm not, i'm not saying it would happen today but like why didn't you say that there was a woman of like there was an indian woman who was not being given her due for the work that she was doing and all like the other members of her staff were and we're sorry and we wouldn't do that again like i had to go through all this other stuff but this like while it might not happen today this is a real thing that happened and it happened to me and it's like part of my lived experience and you can't really be like that's not really what happened when it's literally exactly what happened and the fact that no one else from the show was excluded from this list at all or no one else had to like also likewise justify themselves is a lot and i think is one of the experiences in what i imagine are quite a few that have made her aware of these male dominated spaces and affected both um her creation of them or lack thereof and her treatment of that hi guys welcome back <laughs> what i don't know Hey gang, so now we're going to play a game and guess what? It's not the C word this time. And as heartbreaking as that is, we're going to play a game that is much much worse. Today we are playing the Bechdel test game. Boo! What? We don't hate it also. We're just not We don't hate it. Yeah. We're just not fans. We're not particularly fans and I'll tell you why. So the Bechdel test for those who don't know is from Alison Bechdel's 1985 comic Dexter Watch Out For. And also she wrote um Fun Home the musical. 
as the three main criteria be fulfilled when you are evaluating a conversation in film the first it must have at least two named women the second that they must converse and the third that they must speak about something other than a man where these criteria measure the active presence of women to highlight narrative inequality although the test appears undemanding the number of films failing to meet them reflects the representation afforded to women in film but i personally feel like the value of this test is not in praising films who pass it as much as it is in criticizing films that don't and maybe like providing guidelines for future films because i feel like an acceptance of these three criteria alone fulfilled as a feminist feat might cause complacency masked as progress i also feel like the inherently facile nature of the test does not ensure meaningful representation nor account for performative representation or even like the coexistence of misogyny among many other things in these films so i think that the bechdel test does not do a lot to really erase male dominance or even the male gaze and um today we're going to be playing a game about that opinion that kian and i have that all of us have yeah yeah yeah, yeah sorry parts of us are too and parts have guess so much that he has designed a game around this But I also, have. if he plays the game, he'll get disqualified because he That's doesn't right. fit the criteria. So I have game. to host the game. <laughs> yeah. Oh my <laughs> guys, guys, this is not that. a male-dominated space. That's so sad. Yeah. Oh, But it no. makes sense. Yeah. I know it was a joke. Yeah. Okay, so the game is, you have to follow the three primary rules mm-hmm. of the Bechdel test. We're mm-hmm. already fulfilling two. Yeah. yeah. Can I say something? I was trying to think of like a conversation that passes the Bechdel test on the mini project. And that was like two days ago. I have not <laughs> thought of one. I can't think of like a conversation she's had with another woman that has not been like really like plot specific. Like being like, "Where's this? Thank you." Or like, <laughs> no, really. Like literally, I'm trying to think of like janitors coming in out of rooms, like conversations um, with Beverly. What about Mindy and Annette talking about like swimsuits and stuff? Okay, but this is why I think that this is a silly measure. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think that's. Mindy Kaling is doing something wrong when it comes to representing women on screen. Yeah. She's a woman on screen. I mean, but she has been criticized for not representing enough women. Yeah, which we we've, we've talked about a bit episode. today, and we'll talk about many times over. So many thoughts. Yeah. Many, many, yeah. yeah. But let's play the game, and let's keep it light. <laughs> the three rules are: you have to speak in haikus. Not. Yeah, I'm speaking haikus. Okay, then do us a favor. What? And remind me what the rules of a haiku are. Five, seven, five. I can't do this without writing it yeah, down. Yeah, literally can't turn no. your fingers the syllables as it you're saying them. It has to be them. hard. The second rule is you can't use the letter R. I'm gonna lose. And the haikus can't rhyme. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And the topic is. No. <laughs> the topic is, and this is gonna be so hard for you guys. What? Christopher Nolan movies. Three, two, one. I am of the very no I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of the very. What do you think? Hmm. <laughs> I think that some movies are. You know what? Yes. I. Think that you have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> My thoughts are. Stop! I think so. 
Something R. Stop pausing the timer. Like, Wait, I can't mean. use R in a word at all? No. Are you crazy? I thought I can't say words that start with R. No, there's no, no R. No, you can't say R. There's I know. That's what makes it R. But also, the point is that it's impossible and futile. Yeah. And doesn't achieve anything. Okay, okay, continue, Gyan, without saying Umar. <laughs> Can it? I did not like. I have not seen lots of his. No. I did. Oh, yeah, lots of his. <laughs> Actually. Tenet watched I not. That's more than five. That's six. That's six. <laughs> you know what? It's fine. It's literally fine. Kian, 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 we're perfect. We did really do well. No, Kian, don't ever. Fa- Kian, we're perfect. We are literally perfect. Okay? okay Look at me. Did you know that we're perfect? I didn't. Now you know. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the fact that you all failed the game is actually the point of yeah, the game. Yeah, maybe that was actually like the intention. Maybe the real treasure was the friends we made along the way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, rocking game. I think we really made our point. Maybe more than we needed to. Um, and I think that that needs to be a reflection on the game, not our ability to do whatever it was that we were endeavoring to do yeah. inside the game. It's really more about what we did outside and around the game, you know? Mm-hmm. But now the game's over. Sorry to tell you, if you really enjoyed it, like, rewind and play it again. I'm not playing anymore. I'll play it at home. We have to return to um, the serious matters we were discussing earlier. What do you feel we've covered and learned here today under the ideas of the male gaze and male-dominated spaces as they pertain to Mindy Kaling? I have one thing to say. May I begin? Yes, please. Okay. I think it's really interesting vis-a-vis, like, perspectives on progress in the sense that in 2 to 1, I think there was a really interesting sub-commentary on Western benchmarks for progress. And we were talking about when people are willfully ignorant about, like, India in front of me when I'm at school and things like that. Because they think that things are so much more progressive over there or whatever. But I think that this does a lot to acknowledge her base assumptions and the progress that she's seen in front of her eyes as um, an Indian-American woman growing up in the U.S. in the sense that let's consider the metaphor but also like the reality of the fact that western medicine has largely evolved to provide solutions for a lot of the things that the things that the midwives did for example and other holistic practices could not cover the reason that she's able to get her patients back is because she's like what if there's a complication what if you are obese you have diabetes you have a heart condition what if any of those things happen you need a doctor to be there and the way that she does that i think in the show sometimes can be a bit dismissive of eastern methodologies however if you consider those two things, such as this progress has existed, not to be necessarily dismissive of this other thing, but um, to acknowledge that they can each cater to needs that are different. I think the same goes for Mindy's perspective on women in the workplace. The workplaces she has inhabited and succeeded in, such as the one at the office and things like that, and how she succeeded in them, how that informs the you know further works she has created, starting with the Mindy Project, going now up to sex lives of college girls she's responded to her criticisms and she self-admittedly like likes feedback feeds off of it to change her work if you look at the first time that mindy bikes into the pool and the last time that she bikes away from a wedding she's not the same person and it's not the same show right and well i think that it does a good job of valuing um and reflecting that things take time 
And it shows that not a resistance to change or a reluctance to make room for more, but the actual time that it takes. Mm -hmm. I also think another thing that's valuable within this conversation of male-dominated spaces is the integrity of Mindy's humor. It's something I really look up to. It's also the key thing that's really drawn me to her over the years. It's that her humor is so guttural and like funny. The things she says, I can't really get it from any other shows. Maybe Veep. Yeah. In like a very different <laughs> way. There's also a lot of criticisms that her shows would receive about not using her success to like pay it forward to other women. You guys have anything to say about that? I guess it depends on what you consider paying it forward to other women. I think, like you said, she's created a space for women to be taken seriously as writers and executive producers in the industry. She doesn't necessarily have to hire more women in stories she's writing Mm -hmm. but she's done that also yeah she's not a part of never have i ever yeah she's open casting call exactly so i don't get it yeah like once she was um like she she got a criticism that her character only dated white men and she was like why do i have to become the un in my show like why can't i just like date (laughs) white men she didn't really like act defensively to the criticism as much as acted upon it later when she was like okay maybe that is something i can do but I also think, like, is that her job? No. That's a bigger question, which we will attempt to answer in next week's episode. Parth, if you haven't said anything in the conclusion, would you like Should to? I? Yeah. I think the reason why the mini project works is because it isn't preachy and it doesn't, like, subscribe to any of these buzzwords that we spoke about, like, the female gaze or the Bechdel test. And it doesn't attempt to do that either. Hmm. It is a show about this woman. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I think... You're allowed to have shows about... One thing. Yeah. <laughs> and like, men have I, shows that are just about men all the time. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, as much as I love Larry David and I do, he made Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld made a show about himself in which Larry David wrote a character who's based on himself. Larry David then made an entire show where he plays a version of himself. And then in that show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, he has a imagined Seinfeld spin-off where he's directing an actor <laughs> who's playing himself and writing himself. Yeah. And like, the thing that the show is about is literally just himself. And everyone's like, this shit's crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Also, her show is about many things, but those things can kind of be personal to her. Like I said, there's Leos in the show if you look for them. And there's also just like base level stuff that's genuinely enjoyable. I think a lot of times it's treated like it is shallow, but a lot of people just aren't willing to look further because of how the like uh, face value of the show looks. And I think the misogyny that she experiences is very much like the misogyny that Mindy Keeling Hmm also experienced it's not about something else like the misogyny that's in I May Destroy You or the misogyny that we see in Fleabag yeah it's very much a misogyny that's individual to me it's also like not begrudging in her portrayals the same goes for like you know just the undermining stuff stuff I said with the Emmys but like she's not gonna she doesn't have to forgive or forget like it's a thing that happens a thing someone else did to her and like she doesn't have to absolve them of it they can't be pissed at her for not (laughs) doing that so we're at the end of our episode now sad well we have places to be guys so if you want more come back when we release more however if you hated this guess what this podcast is made out to one person and one person only and that is one miss mindy kaling i know that's her middle name maybe i should start saying her whole name (laughs) although i don't think she likes when people say her whole name Mindy, you let me know, okay? Um, And if you hated this, guess what? The power is in your hands, baby. You can like, you can share, you can follow our Instagram, you can do everything you can. You can add Mindy over and over and over, tweet her about it, do all of those things. The second she reaches out and you want me to stop, I'll do it. 
anything you want. I told you to uncross your arms so you can get opportunities <laughs> from the universe. Uncross your arms, share my podcast, you will have everything you want. Kian has another wishing hair, she'll make the wish for you right now. No, okay? I won't. <laughs> Kian! I don't wanna... So, okay, wait, we can't... Okay, 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 okay. And guess what? If you like this podcast, we love you too. Actually, we love you. We didn't love the people who hate it. We don't have. We don't know you are love. And we only love Mindy. Yeah, and we only love Mindy. And the people who send our love notes too. And the people who send our love notes too. And people who love our podcast, we feel seen by you. And you know what? In like, as per the form of this podcast, maybe we love you too. So, if you also liked it. The list of things you can do, guys, guess what? It's not that dissimilar. Like, share, tweet, Mindy. Try and get her to reach out. And, um, I don't know. See you next week. We'll be talking about a hotter take of mine that's not too far removed from this. See you then, gang. Bye. 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 I don't know why I said that later. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give that a